It's a Cult Disney with oral hygiene featuring the paranoid American. This is the Caught Disney Podcast, where we look for all those secret meanings and interesting details that you didn't notice in classic Disney films. Uh, this is Matt here, as always. Joining me is Thomas Gorenz, the paranoid American. Good morning, good evening, whatever. <laughs> yeah, good morning. That's me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. I'm I'm an eight thirty morning man, like all the time. So that's that's podcast an hour. <laughs> Uh, and it's about 7 30 p.m here so we we're always got like a, a nice almost exact you know 180 degree spin on this yeah i was i was doing a um i actually did an 11 p.m one last night because i had a uk guest and that's just like hey how the time ended up working so this morning i was like looking at my wife like trying to see is she gonna like start being like oh my god you were so loud last night but uh <laughs> she she didn't seem to mine too much i guess so that's good uh, yeah podcast burning the stick on both ends and uh podcasting at all hours it's fun <laughs> you gotta you gotta put in the work man yeah yeah we are up to peter pan today um i i'd say man as we go through these i'm like oh yeah peter pan i guess that's my favorite one i was like no, no, no that's a coin flip with alice in wonderland oh i forgot about dumbo i think i'm still giving the crown to dumbo but we're definitely on like ones i really dig at the moment <laughs> yeah and honestly this is one of those that i don't i i mean i'm sure that i watched it as a kid right every kid has seen peter pan a handful of times um at least you know in the states for sure but this one never really made a huge impact. I always remember Hook way more than I remember the cartoon. But upon rewatching this cartoon, the, the 1953 animation, I was actually kind of astounded with how much the animation techniques had progressed from all the previous films so far. Like the detail, the, the frames, the rotoscoping, the dynamic uh, kind of like flowing of clothes and cloaks and like um you know like curtains and things like this all of those extra little details were things that i don't think really existed in almost any of the previous films at least to the same kind of like frame rate and the length and just the amount of things happening on the screen so all that really stood out to me in a big way that i don't ever really remember like paying attention to i guess yeah i'm having another look at the date i'm thinking by this point was the disneyland television show underway 53 so I guess I guess that me mechanism was was starting to get in place where they maybe had a little bit more of a um I don't want to say assembly line although to a certain extent probably was an assembly line where you would simply just have people doing the the movement of the curtains or something where you know in the past maybe I don't know it was a little more piecemeal I mean it certainly seems like 30s Disney was a little more ramshackle yeah I mean they they were figuring things out by this point because I also noticed in a lot of the previous classics we've watched some of the animation techniques and level of details a little bit inconsistent between the scenes Alice in Wonderland actually was a really good example of that one where all of a sudden it had like this extra amount of detail and 
uh, frames almost of like the rotoscoping at the very end where they're walking way into the distance that didn't exist in some of those earlier ones, as cool as the animation was. Whereas Peter Pan, I don't really think any of the scenes necessarily stood out as not being consistent with other scenes. So I think that was just like a huge leap towards that, like almost that standard inconsistency that you kind of expect from Disney at this point. Yeah, as as far as the movies, um, the anime of Peter Pan I have seen a lot, but again, that was my daughter as a toddler ten years ago phase. Like like you, I'm sure I saw it once or twice as a kid, but it didn't really, you know, stick in the mind. Where but but then ten years ago, we had views of this and some of the um straight to DVD Tinkerbell movies as well. So I've seen like three of those, which I mean, those aren't important at all, but it's just like. You know that's that's. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Where, that's <laughs> where I'm so, coming so from. Sorry, you've from. had to go through all of those. <laughs> well, we knew what we were getting into, right? And yeah, three-year-olds like that this, stuff. This one also surprisingly, I guess, if you exclude a lot of the art house um, adaptations of Alice in Wonderland and like the weird, you know, student films, but if you look at like how many remakes and sequels and prequels and things, I think Peter Pan might actually be up there. Uh, in terms of all the different pro properties that Disney's made movies of, this one seems to have a very large amount of ancillary movies and series and remakes and reboots. Um, you know, probably probably more than Pinocchio even. Yeah, I'm thinking my actual childhood memory of this is probably at least once, definitely once, and maybe even more than once being taken on a school field trip to downtown Atlanta to see a performance of the play. So, um, you know, that stuck in the mind. A uh, hook. I I think we saw that. I'm sure we saw that in the theater, possibly twice. Probably rented once, but I don't think I'd seen it since '92 until or '91 or whatever it was until uh, watching it. You know, last a uh, few nights ago. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about that one. And and before we get too far into these movies, there was one um kind of cool thread that I wanted to pull on here, um and that was that uh this um that this Disney movie with the Peter Pan has kind of its origins in uh folklore but not the same way that a lot of the previous ones but there was there's one cool aspect of it is that the the original story of peter pan as it was being adapted from kind of a series of short stories that were in a book called the little white bird um, by jan barry and as he started writing it into a screenplay or like as a not a screenplay but as a like a play he kind of like started adapting to it saw what the audience really liked um kind of like kept adapting and changing very similar to how alice in wonderland remember like originally they didn't really have some of the favorite characters they didn't really have the mad hatter scene in one of the original in, um you know incarnations of it and as it kind of progressed he started adding more to it refining it adding more details and this is one of those examples that the very first time that peter pan was actually broadcast um, on a stage. It didn't actually have Captain Hook and Peter Pan was the ultimate bad guy. And then slowly he began adding in um, the concept of pirates because kind of like the popular kids, you know, what are the kids into today? Well, ever all the kids really liked pirates at the time. So he decided to kind of like add this character that was a pirate of, of Captain Hook and then add the crocodile and, and the ticking. And like now that's kind of, you know, canon. And that's one of like the most famous characters of it. But at the time, it was like the slow progression as he was working through it. So I thought that was kind of cool because that's not always the case. Uh, sometimes the stories 
are you know like sometimes they're just this big amalgamation of like very old folklore so it's more of like a pick and choose but these ones were very much active stories that were being developed as they were also becoming popular i actually found a, a modern equivalent of that just last week i'd gotten in one of those wiki um rabbit holes and just started reading about like the he-man franchise and it it was kind of an oh. interesting <laughs> it was like a similar trajectory where they did the toys and the comics and um like they're like prince adam was like a like kind of like a nasty guy because you know he's kind of foppish and the show the i have the power thing was like two years into the franchise so you know it's kind of like another one where we're interesting how there's these earlier forms of it that are missing key elements not that those earlier forms are necessarily bad they're just like weirdly different um yeah and you and it's it's actually really interesting to be able to see the earlier versions and how they kind of adapt over time because it because I guess very often you watch this movie, like you watch the polished 1953 movie and you're like, oh, wow, you know, what a set um, story and this whole environment and the characters, but not realizing that that's a culmination of like lots of rough drafts and rewrites and kind of like revisits that a lot of people, I guess you wouldn't even realize unless you go back and you try to read some of those old versions. Um, I guess for me, the ultimate version of, this though probably is the disneyland ride peter pan's flight now let me throw out i get the benefit of when i've ridden it uh, most recent the past few times with the tokyo version which is the full version and at most you're going to see one element of the ride not working if you come back uh, the next day at least that one's been fixed i mean it's just they keep it pristine <laughs> it's smooth I, I know if you ride it in florida it's kind of a janky movement with broken down things and uh but the yeah the, the tokyo one is just like fantastic well and i don't know what the wait times are like at, at the tokyo one but but when you go to disney world in orlando and i assume disneyland in la that uh it's going to be like an hour and a half to a two hour wait for whatever ride you're going on. So unless you actually have kids, you're not going on the Dumbo ride. You're not going on the Peter Pan ride. You know, you're, you're spending those two hours waiting on like the two or three things that you might actually really want to go on. Yeah. I mean, Tokyo can be notoriously uh, busy, but when I was in my twenties, you know, didn't, didn't have a kid yet. What I would do is like target like a Thursday in February. And I remember once or twice being like, gee, I wish there were more people here. It feels weirdly empty. So, <laughs> well, those so, are the greatest, anyone, you know, that, when, when I worked at the park, those were the greatest days Would you would just know when the park was empty because you could see it from the office essentially and just run out there during lunch and just knock out, you know, three or four rides that typically might take an hour to get through for whatever reason, you know, like the park's empty that day. And yeah, those, so, that's great, man. Those, those are the best days ever. So pro tip for anyone that wants to visit Tokyo Disney, uh, you know, bring a coat, come on a Thursday in February and yeah, uh, Disney Sea. I remember taking a girlfriend there once and we, we rode Indiana Jones and she was like, wait a minute, was the skull blue or red? I don't know. Let's ride it again. <laughs> Just walk back around and <laughs> check. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And so I do feel like I had those to myself, but anyway, that's, that's where the ride really just keyed in. It's, you know, it's, it's the up, the track is above you and you're just kind of like drifting along. It's nice. It's, it's pleasant. <laughs> um, as far as the movie and the story goes, uh, watching this most recent time, I was definitely thinking of it like it being a parable, a parable, a parable or a metaphor for sort of law of attraction, you know, intention sort of stuff seems like very baked into this. Um, and actually I don't know that much about Barry's background. So, uh, 
maybe you got a word or two on that well yeah man so i so i did a deep dive because i wasn't as familiar either and i came up with some really wild wild information um that kind of turned where i guess my initial assumptions were for a lot of like the symbolism of say like peter pan's shadow and being detached from it and the lost boys and never wanting to grow up and all of these things some of it's a little bit obvious of you know like the archetypes that he's putting together but his actual backstory was tragic fascinating perhaps very offensive in like a lewis carroll sort of way <laughs> um so so the, the general premise here is that he um right before his brother's 14th birthday they were out ice skating on some pond somewhere and there was some kind of an accident and the initial reports for like the first like 30 or 40 years after this happened was that they were with a friend and the friend knocked his brother over and it resulted in a, a cranial fracture and his brother just died like a couple days before his 14th birthday later um sort of like articles and research has come out and they say that the friend might actually have been jm barry um james and they call him jamie at the time when he was a kid so that the you know when the reports came out it said a friend knocked him over because it was too tragic to actually report that this kid knocked over his brother on the ice and killed him um and whatever happened that obviously it was very traumatic incident but it affected the mom even more and it got to a weird point where um the brother's name was david so jamie after having killed david assumingly that's one of the theories the uh the mother just couldn't accept the fact and she was kind of split of two minds and one was that well jamie just or uh, david just is never going to grow up he's just always going to be a 13 year old forever um but also jamie would start to act and respond as david and the mom kind of played into it so he kind of was like role-playing as his dead brother which i'm sure sort of created all sorts of unhealthy connections and at the same time he felt this sort of detachment from his mom because the mom kind of blamed him for the death uh, and that was regardless of he did it or it was the friend that did it just that loss of life of like the favorite baby child you know the youngest child in the family just losing that put everything on jamie um so that that's sort of some of the backstory of where this comes from and that's why the the lost boys kind of stay young forever and peter pan's all about staying young forever it's this homage to his dead brother and you'll find some some kind of like crazy theories on what the lost boys and hook and the whole peter pan one of them that feeds into this is essentially that all the lost boys are dead because they represent children that are never going to grow up so and peter pan his specifically his shadow form is the one that brings them like from the life into the afterlife so that they're not they don't feel alone during that travel but it puts this very dark somber tone over the entire story of peter pan now that peter pan's really kind of like this uh, mercurial messenger or like helper of the you know dead children's souls and that all the, the lost boys don't grow up because they're dead and they're that ghosts. makes them the uh the, the boatman of the river sticks basically yeah exactly <laughs> Um, so so that's that's part of that's part of the backstory and the other aspect which gets into this creepy Lewis Carroll uh, sort of realm is that he also kind of became stunted and one of the notes said that uh, it was very atypical but right around the time that this happened when he you know 
theoretically killed his brother his brother died at least he all he just stopped growing both physically and emotionally so he essentially stayed as like a 15 year old for the rest of his life and when he got into his mid-30s just like lewis carroll he almost exclusively made friends with like six seven and eight year old children and would you know go go around and like find ways to become friends and like develop long-lasting relationships with children even to the point where he got in close with his family that um he actually named the children after john michael and uh peter were named after these actual family that he kind of like you know inserted himself into the the dad died i think of cancer and then like the mom later died and he took it upon himself to forge and rewrite the will so that the children would be left under his care instead of under the nanny's care so he actually ended up becoming the legal guardian for these children and if you look into the backstories of these children i think two of them committed suicide the one that was actually named um peter pan was named after threw himself under a train and always considered this to be like the most tragic uh or, or was the most uh horrible masterpiece ever created or something like he never liked being associated with the movie and there was a letter that was found written to another one of these kids that he was friends with in his like late 30s and it essentially amounted to like don't tell anyone us don't tell anyone about our relationship. I adore you, yada, yada. The connotations are kind of, you know, left there. Um, there hasn't been as much digging into his background as there has been into Lewis Carroll. Uh, however, it it kind of just like leads a lot of, you know, uh, leads down a lot of the same questions, the same path. So there's some of the backstory for J.M. Barry and the original influence of Peter Pan, sort of this arbinger or um you know carrier of death and and uh almost like an angel that looked over dead children and that was that's one of the more like outlandish somber takes on this but it really fits in like the puzzle piece has all the right little notches to fit perfectly into the big puzzle oh yeah it has all the you know oh in the in the, at least in this animated film version and in most people's minds now he got uh you know captain hook and basically devil red you know that sort of thing like like there's a heaven and hell to never never land so <laughs> a purgatory so as well i suppose and if and if we just start going through the movie because the movie is is actually the 1953 you know animated it is a great model to kind of like step through um the different phases of the story some things were left out some things were kind of added but for the most part it sets like a really perfect pace and it's and the first scene really is peter pan being attracted to wendy's house because wendy's got his uh shadow like kept away in a drawer or something right they don't want to lose your shadow your shadow self i guess yeah uh, again the the take i was getting watching this was i was like I wonder if it's kind of like an astral projection thing, you know, which uh, I, I guess that's a that's a few ticks over. Maybe not quite as tragic, but, uh, you know, Peter's well, teaching well, in the original story. Or the, the way that he loses his shadow to begin with is that he's with um, he's at his house with his mom, Peter Pan is, and she shuts the window so quick that it basically severs him and his shadow and that's how he originally loses the shadow and the the metaphor here kind of the underlying text here is that um he's kind of had this severance with him and his mom 
and she's kind of shut him out you know the window closed and he's on the outside looking in and he's kind of like feeling like he's detached from some part of his soul which is probably his dead brother's relationship with his mom or whatever so when wendy gets it um she's got this detached shadow and the first thing that she realizes is that he can't reattach himself to his own shadow she has to help him sew it to his feet so that it you know it'll actually stick with them and he and another thing that was telling is that as this is happening he's mentioning how like she's the mother figure and oh like will you be my mother so his original mom is the one that severed him from his shadow blocked him out with the window and now as he's being you know re, uh, united with his shadow again it's through wendy and again through this window so that was this very like one for one uh, you know comparison of here's how his original mother severed him from a shadow and here's how his new mother is reuniting him in, with his shadow and it's i mean it's mommy issues all the way down right oh yeah <laughs> and um the other one that kind of this, this might be a movie only thing but uh yeah i just never really picked up on in the past where they're like okay kids here's your tonic then go to bed i'm like wait a minute this is like 1900 the tonic is probably <laughs> heroin <laughs> <laughs> so you know maybe, maybe these kids it's are definitely opium of some kind yeah. <laughs> yeah so they, they, you know never never land and peter can't hang to be like their shared fever dream or something but uh of course metaphors are, are way more interesting but uh just that that was my first thought like well of course they go never never land <laughs> um i'm just having a look through my notes a little bit i, I guess we could, should, can talk about the darlings parents a little bit in this movie is is just a weird character sure of two people that never seem like they'd fit together but <laughs> I, maybe yeah, it's the, like a the victorian mom and the dad, hangover <laughs> yeah kind of a victorian era hangover or something so yeah <laughs> yeah um, the the uh customs the clothing sort of the the mannerisms and everything do have this uh sort of vague but victorian era um feel to them for sure so we've already um, kind of painted Peter Pan as the, the boatman of the river sticks or whatever. Um, he also is like a, a pan, I guess. He doesn't have the, uh, you know, centaur or the goat body or anything to go with it. But uh, but he's got the be, flute. Like, he's got the flute. He's got the flute for sure. <laughs> and the original uh, story that Peter Pan was based on, again, it focused on him as a child when he was just like weeks old. But he rode around on a goat. And the name Peter Pan was just not haphazardly chosen. That Pan literally is a reference to the god Pan, um, the trickster, you know, the 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 guy with the little flute. So this has always been the influence of Peter Pan. And it was a little bit more obvious with this little baby riding a goat around, you know, playing a flute. I mean, you've got the all the symbolism right there. But as it kind of evolved over time, some of that stuff dropped off. He, he, you know, there's no goat obviously in the final story and, and the cartoon. Well, and, and then when we get to hook, which we'll talk about more, they make pan seem like it's a, you know, like a title, like Caesar or something. <laughs> and, and also um, this doesn't really come across in the movie because they don't really show it this way, but in almost every time the play was enacted, um, but you know, before the movie came out, hook was always played by Peter's dad. So the, like there was always this connotation that the, the angry, nasty dad with the bad attitude 
um, that was all against, you know, folklore and fairy tales and wanted everyone to be serious. That was also Hook. And, you know, again, there's like this Oedipus complex going on of Peter Pan never grows up, always going to be, you know, mommy's boy. And then I'm going to be like fighting my dad to the death constantly um, over essentially the death of my brother. Yeah, the, the Oedipal complex drawn out for eternity, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess there's a fair amount of, uh, you know, like a Greek hangover coming in into this movie. Um, in Never Neverland, again, let's let's break down. You said you want to break down the sections of that a bit. Yes. So when we're first introduced to Neverland, right, it's essentially this place that you can only get to by flying and, and having happy thoughts and the key ingredient being pixie dust. And, a, and on a slight tangent in the movie, they make it seem like Peter Pan forgets. First, he's like, hey, you just got to think of happy thoughts and it's not working. And then he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You need pixie dust, too. In the book, again, he was like this more you know mischievous sort of trickster character and again he was he was almost like a villain before they introduced hook so he was trying to get these kids to think that they could fly without telling them that pixie dust existed and then finally he's like all right all right i've been messing with you guys really you need this pixie dust and then they fly off to neverland but as we actually see neverland in the 1953 cartoon it zooms in and we see uh there's like mermaid lagoon is an area on there uh, and there's also, I think, Cannibal Cove, which they don't mention again by name at, at all, but it's directly next to where all the Indians hang out. And there's some stuff that we'll get into when we get into like what I would say, like the racist <laughs> uh, part of the movie that where they've got these Native Americans sort of tied directly to this Cannibal Cove area. Um, that was just it's an interesting aspect as as they're flying into Neverland, these are the different kind of areas that are within Neverland. And then I guess that's almost like a little precursor to the whole uh, Disneyland concept. You can you can even tie it out whereas Cannibal Cove becomes, you know, Toontown. Nobody talks about Toontown. <laughs> <laughs> but and I, I was wondering too that uh, how much the pirates of peter pan influenced the pirate ride of disney and all the other pirates in disney was there another film or influence before this that i'm not aware of or do you think this is where the the pirates you know um like the entire ride and the and the whole sphere of you know pirates in the disney universe came from um i think there is definitely something to that um i'm actually running a quick search i know that the pirate accent uh, comes from a live action film, which actually still might be a Disney film. Uh, I'm just typing pirate accent origin and see if I can bring that up. Because I got that feeling as we were watching this, it was like, man, this reminds me so much of the Pirates ride, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean ride uh, at Disney, just with the way that they were singing and the way that they were all like grouped together and sort of like had that uh, that cadence of like swinging their arms together that you would almost see on like a, a Disney ride. And it just reminded me of it the entire time. Okay. I, I've got it here. In 1950, the British actor Robert Newton starred as Long John Silver in a film adaptation of the Robert Louis Stevenson novel, Treasure Island. And apparently he was the first guy to rock that accent. So this would have been, you know, just after that. So I, I think we can give uh, this movie definitely visual credit, I think. 
um to a certain extent of how we kind of so yeah as far as the ride's concerned for sure because you know pirates themselves of course would have a wide variety of many different accents so because they're from everywhere <laughs> and uh and speaking of pirates and hook there was another really cool thing that i had never realized until doing a deep dive on this and that's that the uh the original story was based on hook and the the ticking crocodile uh chasing after him was a direct correlation of moby dick and captain ahab um to, down to the point where uh the a writer he kind of gave direct credit to melville you know the writer of moby dick and in addition to not just moby dick and and hook um there was a lot of other aspects like all of the food that came from the lost boys like the exact cuisine that they eat came from another book that melville wrote uh, and there was like a few other instances where he just kind of like directly lifted things that melville had written in his books and put them into peter pan uh, more as an as a, an homage not necessarily plagiarism because later on he wrote articles kind of saying like here's you know where i took this information from and why i did it and it was because he was just like in love with melville's work i guess we all kind of experience it backwards now because i definitely you know knew about captain hook and his ticking crocodile first and then you know, later <laughs> learned about the white whale and maybe in subconsciously got like Oh yeah, that's kind of like Peter Pan, you know. I, I think most of us do it in reverse these days. You don't have too many kids obsessed with Moby Dick. <laughs> no, I mean, and honestly, I think it's a perfect example of how a strong archetype can kind of jump between stories, and it's essentially the same thing, right? Like even even if you change the dynamic um, between the whale and the crocodile and Hook and Ahab, it's kind of the same story because it was intentionally made to be the same story. Well, I guess it's the idea that the the sea is so unknowable. Again, we we you know are supposed to know more about nearby space than our oceans, right? So, Lovecraftian yeah. horrors at the depths of the ocean. I that you know that kind of comes through, I guess, with uh, that kind of concept. That whale's just waiting for you out there, and it'll it'll show up when it does. The crocodile show up when it does, well, and not just that, but but both of those creatures already have a taste for you because they've they've bitten off and eaten an appendage of your body so now they like they know that taste so the crocodile like wants more because he had hook's hand and now he wants the rest of them right and it was and it wasn't necessarily the exact same thing with ahab ahab also became disfigured in his pursuit here so they both made these kind of trades um in their pursuit of these monsters is it is it hook that really drives the uh peter actually chopped his hand off vibe I, the movie doesn't really uh peter pan doesn't really yeah so, that. so he would he would still have his hand if it were not for peter and he would technically also still be alive if it weren't for peter so peter again in this way is sort of a villain especially if you start like we we can start going into some of the other uh the other kind of like metaphors in this movie um but it it does potentially cast hook as this unsung hero of the movie and this this unintentional you know villain and that peter pan was really the bad guy all along yeah i mean like he i mean even from the start he is even in the uh disney animation he's he's a little prickly you know like this isn't like a kid that you might he's gonna screw with you if you hang out with him he's he's that kid you know <laughs> 
Well, and it's really telling because in the very, very start of the movie, right before he enters Wendy's window, he's kind of creeping on their roof and Tinkerbell's kind of floating by. And as she flies by his face, there's this one sort of like frame or sequence of frames where he just has like the ultimate Joker mad villain grin and the way that the light illuminates only the bottom of his face and not the eyes so like his eyes are still in the dark and tinkerbell's just illuminating his mouth it's like this really creepy look that i feel like you know even if it wasn't 100 percent intentional it absolutely conveys the original sort of you know concept of who peter pan was outside of how he kind of ends up being in the movie yeah hold on i'm um uh we since we've been talking about hook i think it is time to have a little chat about this guy can i bring it up here we go we got our i don't know if you're getting my shmi there <laughs> oh we've got we got a picture of shmi and it's the 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 cartoon version from the 53 movie yeah, yeah, this this is a Tokyo Disneyland shot from from back when I would hit it quite regularly. But um, yeah, between the anim animated and, and watching Hook, I was just like, oh man, Bob Hoskins really nailed it. Me, I think they brought him back twenty years later to do it again in a different movie, if I'm correct. Uh, just called Neverland, but uh, he he has my favorite. Well, I I would say like my top three favorite voices in this entire movie by far yeah so um the, the other one it was um maybe not i didn't like the role as much but the uh the large indian chief also is a sort of a an, like an unknown legend in disney voiceover and we'll we'll get to that that guy as well <laughs> but i i just since you were mentioning hook maybe being the the unintentional hero i feel like that kind of makes uh shmi his jiminy cricket to a certain point <laughs> <laughs> just for you know, just for archetypes. I mean, you know, having a shorthand when you're making these movies too. It's like you said, some of the same people are working on them, so you're gonna get some of the same vibe, and that's kind of the vibe I got from him. So when Smee is an interesting character because he's like a non-conformist pirate, right? Like he he's technically a pirate, but he's not like all the other pirates. He's kind of this uh this aloof um and also like eager to please like he's a middle management he's like a a corporate you know bootlicking middle management pirate <laughs> and i think by the time of hook they were playing him a bit too as like you know hook's boy toy so that's kind of <laughs> that's something you could not have done in 1953 for sure <laughs> I, I, I i guess <laughs> well, there was there was a, a lot of cool stuff from the movie i think uh I, I just actually noticed this. I guess they're they're making a quote unquote live action version of this next year, which I, I do wonder if that's kind of where they're gonna, you know, put a put their bid in a bit a little bit for for refashioning the story. <laughs> I mean, just keep adding to it. Again, this is one of the movies that has been readapted and revisited the most. I think I didn't I didn't do any like spreadsheet analysis, but just the sheer amount of tinkerbell stories and neverland revisited and um and again this being a play there's so many different adaptations of it just in like the play form and one of a funny note that i noticed too is that once you know the background of the uh the death of his brother on the ice and everything there's a lot of peter pan on ice reproductions which has this whole extra you know dark tone to it because technically it's you know that's how the the brother died was 
ice skating. And I wonder if anyone's ever actually died in a production of a Peter Pan on ice and also got a cranial fracture. Oh, yeah, that's some serious existential like uh, ripples through time <laughs> for sure so and we're on this note of uh of peter pan being bad and maybe captain hook being good so there's a couple extra elements in here to, to sprinkle in i think since we're kind of on that topic one of them is that um the lost boys in the in the original writings he wrote that peter pan kind of like thinned out the lost boys as they got older um, and as they they became more and more to manage and they never he never really explicitly says what thinning out means. But again, one of these theories, if you just say like, well, if it's thinning out a herd the way that we understand it in modern day, he's literally killing them. So the reason why Lost Boys, if this is sidestepping that they're ghosts and they never grow up, if they're actually growing up the reason that they never become old is because at night Peter Pan goes out and he just kills everyone that's starting to get a little bit too old. So when everyone wakes up in the next morning, it's like, Oh, wasn't it like so-and-so's 15th birthday? He's not here anymore. So like everyone is just perpetually, you know, like a, a tween or something because he's killing them. And the ones that get away or even maybe the ones that get rescued essentially are being rescued by hook so that he can bring them on board and teach them how to survive in this crazy world of Neverland. And by them, you know, leaving sort of a pubescence and entering adulthood, they become a pirate. So you really only have two options in this world. You're either a lost boy or you live long enough and escape Peter Pan's grasp to then become a pirate and fight back against them. Aren't the lost boys vampires? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I I had a, a more notable allegory. I was thinking of the film uh, Logan's Run, the, specifically the film version where they go to the I forget what the district is called, but there's the the burnt out area of the the um, domed city where they have basically the tweens that are living a lost boy's life. It's like kids aged from like six to thirteen that just don't fit into their society and. Uh, one of them's like threatening Logan and he starts bullying him like, oh, you look like you're like 14, 15. They're going to kick you out soon and you're going to have nowhere to go. Um, you only get 15 years past that in the Logan's Run world. Anyway, three if you're in the book. So <laughs> I, I don't know if you saw it, but I thought that was an interesting sci-fi sort of, um, you know, retake on the Lost Boy concept and especially the thinning them out concept. Yeah, I mean, th- this might be a little bit of a tangent. I believe there was also a movie with Justin Timberlake called Timeless or something along those lines where essentially everyone is born and you get to live till like, I'm going to make up a number because I don't remember it, but it was like you get to live till you're 25 or something and then you die, but you can earn extra years and essentially just be, you know, young forever for infinity um, as long as you can keep stacking these years up. So some people have like, two million years logged and and then like the amount of time you have left to live becomes the new form of currency so if i wanted to like you know buy something from you i might offer you five years of my life to put onto your own in exchange for like a car or something um yeah, but i always was, uh, that one's in time actually actually i did a podcast on, there you go <laughs> i did a podcast on that a couple of years ago and i I think we ended up mostly uh talking about classic cars because that movie features so many <laughs> <laughs> we're like that's the best thing uh, again it's a high concept sci-fi i'm always down for that's the guy that did gattaca so you know obviously 
he's thinking about what he's doing but yeah that 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 movie has it some flaws. absolutely had that gattaca kind of feel to it yeah sort of yeah yeah for sure but uh yeah gattaca gets the the nod yet i haven't done a podcast about gattaca just just in time but it's yeah this is one of those movies where it's like i know it's not great but i just like it more than i should so <laughs> um actually i i am wondering how the general populace feels about hook nowadays is it somewhat forgotten i mean it's spielberg so it's that weird blip on his radar i guess um i gotta say i definitely don't have my thumb on the pulse of you know what everyone likes currently but in my rewatch i thought it held up absolutely well like exceedingly well and not just uh in just the i mean it's got robin williams it's got steven spielberg like everything from the acting and the writing is phenomenal, but they pay so much homage to the original writing, um, you know, outside the 1953 cartoon, there's so many cool little Easter eggs. Like one of the examples that I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and butcher a little bit, but I believe that, that um, Tinkerbell in the book always called someone like a, a silly ass or, or like, you know, equivalent of like a dumbass. I can't remember the exact phrase. It was like, at, like it, I think it was like something like silly ass. And in the Hook movie, towards the very, very end, Tinkerbell, played by Julia Roberts, says that to Peter. She calls him like a silly ass or whatever that specific phrase was. And that's just one of like 20 or 30 little Easter eggs that I noticed in this rewatch of like, oh, wow, what a cool sort of like harken back to the original source material that the 53 cartoon kind of glossed over. Well, yeah, like uh, the audience clapping Tinkerbell back to life is a pretty like definitive part of the play but isn't in the movie at all so and and i think yeah that's that's another good point a lot of the elements in the story were written specifically to have a big impact in the stagecraft so like the crocodile with the ticking clock even though it's like such a cool high level concept even in the animation of the movie in the actual play as it was being performed was an incredible um point of the stagecraft because they could actually have this like ticking and have it move around the audience and added this whole extra level of like interactivity that you don't necessarily get the same feeling for in the movie in the movie it just uh adds itself as this like ticking reminder of you know hook might you know is kind of like on the clock to being dead or that time's passing and that maybe the kids are getting older you know it's it's the same exact trope of the 24 hour ticking time of like the building's about to explode right and yeah and also the hook movie really kind of does dive into that concept where hook you know is trying to make himself the good guy for peter's kids i mean you know for very uh ulterior motives of course but um just the you know, if we, if but that's such think- a cool inversion of the original story too because again in the play hook was usually played by whoever was playing their dad but in this case it's two different people and it's uh and he's like trying to re like be the good guy you know he's actively becoming the good guy in his like most evil form quote-unquote as the captain hook I, I guess now is the time to be talking a little boy, a little bit more about Hook because we need to get that as well. Because yeah, I did quite enjoy watching it. It was a lot, a lot better than I remembered it being. I, I think maybe, I think it had maybe too many blockbuster tropes when it came out, and they just stuck out to you. But now twenty, thirty, what thirty years down the line, 10, 20, 30, 30 years down the line, 
those tropes don't bug us anymore. They're a little more charming. It's like, oh yeah, that's what movies were like back then, you know? Uh, I'm thinking yeah, so specifically that's a very fair point. <laughs> like the Lost Boys um, village or hideout or whatever, where it's got all those tracks that they use, like those skateboard things. I'm like, oh my God, this <laughs> this could not have been made at any other time than when it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it looks like a, a ride straight out of Disney World and it looks like someone could have lost their fingers easily in some of those set designs. 90s disney world in in particular right it's like rocket rod tracks or something me too that also may be an aspect of watching it now in like hd whereas before you were probably watching it on a washed out crt or you saw it in the movie theater and it might have been a little bit blurrier so you know those extra little details might not have stood out as much as they do now but that's uh, but again, it's it almost like adds a charming quality to some of those scenes that it didn't annoy me or take away from it at all. Because I guess part of this is like you're not really, at least me, I wasn't like absolutely teleported to Neverland and, you know, completely suspending all my disbelief because the entire time you've got Robin Williams acting like he's still this like corporate guy from the real world. Um, so that always kind of keeps you, you know, from completely jumping completely into neverland i think and and let's um i guess another big thing with hook is the makeup uh things that got me i was like why does maggie smith look exactly the same age in like 1991 or two and i'm like oh they they made her up to look older and she actually does look like that now that's amazing so <laughs> i was like really confused by them like does she just not age ever she's always been old i don't know <laughs> and um and then i i knew dustin hoffman was in this but halfway through the movie i like i just could not see him and i had to check and make sure that was dustin hoffman you know so i i guess that's acting props that i literally cannot recognize this very iconic actor under this makeup and performance <laughs> There's one other huge point that stood out to me, and that's that they did not try to turn it into an annoying musical. There's one musical number that I remember. You get um, one, and it wasn't, and it wasn't even really like they broke into a song and dance. It was more of a montage where Peter's getting trained and he's learning how to like sword fight and fight, and he's doing jumping jacks. And as he's doing this, they're all kind of singing this like chant slash song, but it doesn't have that that same feeling of like oh boy we're like we just went into the song and dance routine in the disney movie and never kind of crosses that threshold and it just remains kind of that 80s 90s musical you know training montage which i like it's a, it's one of my favorite tropes so there was actually a plan to do that songs were written and and one you're forgetting about is uh peter's daughter singing her little i'm lonely song or whatever and, um, yeah, I guess I'm not really counting that one just because it doesn't like transform into like everyone on stage is like singing. That's more of just like a, I don't know. I, I guess I I give that one a pass. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that was the surviving song that actually made it into the movie because there was something like five songs potentially written to make this a straight up musical. And uh, I, that... I didn't know that. I'm actually very glad in retrospect that that did not happen. Well, um, I am too because that that's, scene that's kind of sticks thing. out. It's like, why is why is this here? Like, they even could have, I don't know. Like, maybe maybe the little girl was going to be like disappointed if she didn't get a certain singer song. I don't know, but like the actress, <laughs> it was in the contract. <laughs> it was in the writer. Yeah, yeah, really. So, um, but there was a point where they were thinking about doing that, like seriously. And I guess in that case, um, good, good heads prevailed. You know, so. <laughs> 
And we don't Better we don't need it. any more suicides associated with the the cast of this <laughs> of this production. Oh yeah, no, no, not at all. So um yeah, it is uh this is an interesting place to see Robin Williams. This is like right in the middle of his kind of like, I guess, transition period. Cause you're when audiences came to see this, they're still still kind of thinking uh, they they still got, you know, manic cocaine Robin on the mind, but he's also taking a little more pains to act by this point he's already done a couple of dramatic uh, workers with i haven't done any of my research on this but is this before or after the aladdin cartoon this is before the the aladdin cartoon but with disney because it's touchstone he'd already done a good morning vietnam and dead poet society so he he'd already started to sort of like lay down a bit of his uh dramatic chops and i think he actually basically missed the mid 80s due to cocaine so (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, so so I mean, I, I guess one of my big milestones is him as the genie in Aladdin. I think that's like a huge milestone in his career where now he almost like fully embraced his previous stand up over the top routines. And, you know, I guess even Good Morning Vietnam he has that same like over the top aspect to him. But man, with the genie in Aladdin, it was like every single voice and impression that i think he had ever come up with he just tried to put it all into that one movie which reminds me a lot of his earlier stand-ups when he had like the rainbow suspenders on and he's like like totally on cocaine jumping around bouncing from like you know one part of the stage to the other i think there's a famous stand-up when he gets heckled and he actually stops and he like addresses the heckler directly and um i mean that that was just that high frantic cocaine energy robin williams well, I guess a cool thing about this movie is he does get to do both because Peter Panning is very much the the button down dramatic Robin, and then um, you know Peter Pan he gets to go full manic and and childish on purpose, right? <laughs> yeah, Jack, that, right? Remember Jack? Yeah. Oh yeah, a, a recent performance that kind of hits a similar vibe. Uh, have you seen the uh, Color Out of Space movie? Oh, I absolutely love that one. I yeah. do because you you the first thirty minutes you're like, oh, it's nice to see Nick Cage here. Why did they cast Nick Cage? <laughs> and then thirty minutes in, you're like, oh, that's why they cast <laughs> Nick Cage. <laughs> that's, and now that's like one of my favorite Nick Cage performances. Yeah, I know you. Yeah, you're all over Nick Cage, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, t- talk about you know, um, like putting someone in a place where they can excel right like it was almost made like the movie wasn't necessarily written for him but man what a great like modern adaptation of lovecraft plus an outstanding you know feverish performance by nicholas k like you've like his acting becomes so wild that you actually believe you are also in a fever dream as you're watching it it's amazing i I guess that's why i'm saying that it sort of seems like a similar acting template and hook and it's perfectly fine in hook but maybe like you know hone to perfection and color out of space <laughs> i mean the hook was reserved hook absolutely has that corporate the you know at this point disney is a full-blown global conglomerate on their way to becoming skynet you know <laughs> whereas they're like almost there now already right um but it, but it kind of comes across Ross, just like the tracks that you mentioned in the lost boys like that those tracks happen in a global conglomerate steven spielberg multiple you know million dollar budget actor blockbuster sort of um environment that doesn't happen in almost any other environment that i'm aware of but hook, hook is actually uh, who actually produced hook i, I want to say it was like columbia or something i don't think it was 
uh, actually a Disney Studio one. Let's see if we can work that out real quick. Cook is a uh, directed. There's the poster. Maybe we can glean it from the poster. Because oh yeah, now you. Well, I don't know. We we keep having you know various Pinocchio films come out of a uh, widely varying quality. So I guess you you know when things are public domain, you can do whatever you want with them, can't you? TriStar. Yeah, oh, and and Amblin that's actually. TriStar. Uh, I mean, it still has that high production budget value that that you can see. Like the the movie exudes it a little bit. That like corporate budget where they had more more than enough money to put towards things and reshoots. The, like for example, the food fight scene. I read that they had done that so many different times, and um, it wasn't always going to be that multicolored version because it costs so much to do the reshoots and the retakes and color. That they almost went with like making everything white or making everything gray, um, but essentially, you know, it was demanded that everything stay in color, and that's probably one of the most memorable scenes of the movie. When someone tries to think about what they remember from that movie twenty years later, the food fight scene I think is is at the top of those. Yeah, you didn't want just gruel flying through the air at that point. Yeah, I'm also looking um the budget for it. Uh, release date December eleventh, nineteen ninety one. Probably explains why I couldn't remember if it was nine one or nine two. Um, budget 70 million for 1991 that is pretty insane uh that's like you know just behind like terminator 2 basically budget wise <laughs> when they had all the ancillary you know happy meals and burger king meals and toys and everything like this was the the full out assault <laughs> on um on you know commerce when this movie came out oh and just uh i don't think we're going to talk about it in detail but yeah john williams definitely made a very good score for this because you do not really miss the fact that they cannot use the uh iconic songs you might remember from the disney version <laughs> so so speaking of iconic songs uh, from the disney version the one that we we can't uh go on without at least addressing was what made the red man red right yeah i was about to be like oh you could fly and i was like oh no he wants to talk about that one okay gotcha yeah this is now this is the one no one cares about that you can fly one <laughs> it's it's about who made the red man red and and first uh i want to answer that question uh that the song poses the song itself explains that what made the red man red was that the very first indian prince kissed the maid and started to blush and he's been blushing ever since and that's what made the red man red. But if you look at, you know, why the uh, the original, if we're going to step away from like the funny, silly cartoon aspect of it, what made the red man red was actually that when the original um, colonizers showed up, the Indians that they found there were of, um, uh, what was it? Oh, it was the, the Bothuk Indians. And they essentially put red ochre paint all over themselves, all over their possessions, their canoes. Um, when like a, a child was becoming a man, part of that initiation was taking this red clay kind of sand pigment and rubbing it all over themselves in order to become sort of an adult and, you know, pass through those rites of initiation. And in fact, one of the punishments in this culture was that they prevented you from wearing red on your skin. Like they wouldn't let you put red on your skin as the form of punishment because that was like setting you as an outcast. So the actual, uh, in case anyone cared, the actual reason why um, they were called red skin and why this Disney is even asking what made the red man red. It was just that the very first tribe that people encountered at the very tip of, I think it was um, by Newfoundland, 
as those culinaries came in, those are the first ones they met, right? That was like the welcome to the new world. And they see these Indians putting red pigment all over their skin. And that's why they called them redskins. It wasn't because they had like dark tans or they had like an amberish, you know, bronze skin. It was literally because of a red pigment on the skin. But that term just started to become applied to just all of them uh, across the world, essentially, or at least across um, North America. So anyways, that there's the serious answer for what made the red man red. Um, the song itself, interestingly enough, was done by um, a guy named Candido. I, I can't remember his first name. I, I had looked it up earlier. And I don't know if you're familiar with any of his other work, but he was the angry, the angry apple tree in The Wizard of Oz. Um, he was... In, uh he was the the Indian chief in Peter Pan. He was one of Maleficent's goons in Sleeping Beauty. He was the captain of the guard of the crocodile in the Robin Hood movie. Uh, he also voices a number of characters in the Haunted Mansion attraction, the ones that have like the deep baritone voices. Those were originally voiced by the same guy. Um, and he did a number of Ralph um, Bakshi movies. He did Hey, Good Looking, and I think he did some voices in Heavy Traffic. Um, so he had like this wide gamut, and the vo- and for whatever reason, the voice stood out. And I was like, I know I've heard that voice a million times before. It's a little bit unfortunate that he happens to be the Indian chief for this song that Disney would very much prefer to just forget ever existed, and I believe is cut out of most versions that get syndicated. Yeah, I was about to say, I think this actually gets cut out, and um. I'm, I, how long have they been doing that? I feel like maybe the Blu-ray is like when I actually saw that sequence. Um, again, I, I've got some, you know, I saw the stage play. Maybe I even saw the on ice, although I don't think so. But yeah, it's it's this one even more than Alice in Wonderland. It's, it's a little bit difficult to parse like what's Disney and what's just like baked into the story itself. Uh, so, I mean, again, since this was, since um, Peter Pan story was based on some of Melville's work and Melville's very first book. I can't remember the the name of it. I, I've got it written down somewhere, but his, um, his very first book was called Typey. And Typey was essentially about a white guy going and living among the cannibals. And this was what made Melville a household name. Like it was a wildly popular book before Moby Dick even came out. Um, so there was very much this connotation of Indians and cannibals and redskins that was incorporated by the original writer of Peter Pan. And that did make it, although Disney, obviously, like it wasn't um, necessarily as uh, pronounced as like having a whole song and dance and a whole musical number. <laughs> but uh, uh, the the Disney movie Again, is is very heavily criticized over this and i i would almost assume that anyone watching it in like modern times probably are watching a version that does not include this part um we were talking a little bit about tokyo disney um are you familiar with the uh tokyo version of the tower of terror we we've talked about it i think offline before but that it's the the one in orlando is twilight zone themed and you have the same ride and it's a similar experience however they've removed all of the twilight zone references and what they have added in and i'm, I'm looking for the guys now i'm going to miss that part unfortunately because i'm just seeing twilight zone here but uh the the whole conceit is you're at this hotel that's owned by a now dead rich industrialist but the thing is all the paintings that he would go to cultures all around the world and like 
pillage them. So, <laughs> you know, there's there's all these like artifacts all around the hotel. There's these paintings and the paintings always show uh, like him and his um, assistant like running from like the natives trying to kill them because they're stealing their, you know, cultural art artifacts and things. And um, it just sounded like he worked for any British museum then. Yeah, 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 really. And uh, and the conceit is this uh, tiki spirit ended up like murdering him at a New Year's Eve party, and and now it's angry at you for being there. I guess is the conceit of the ride. I can't I can't quite remember, but um, you're adding to the cultural appropriation of of uh, seeing these relics taken from their you know original holders, essentially. But all of the cast members working at the attraction just like you know um, idolize him as like you know a great industrialist so that just adds to the like you have a tour guide talking about how great he is and you're seeing these pictures of him like doing the worst things imaginable <laughs> so um I, you know that's kind of like taking it in the other direction i guess than uh we did in the the 1950s uh peter pan movie um my my main thought you, you may have been here close enough H have you been to the ridiculous south of the border attraction in south carolina before oh Maybe it's, it, it is yeah. one of my absolute favorite play because because when i was growing up we used to do a road trip because I, I moved from upstate new york to south florida around like the age of eight or something and then for the next i don't know six or seven summers every single year we would drive from south florida back up to upstate new york and that was almost like the exact middle point when I knew that, you know, I didn't have to sleep in the car for another two days, whatever, is when you start seeing all these billboards for like Pedro and all these funny little like, you know, jokes and puns about chili and, and like Mexican food and stuff. But yeah, I, I am well versed in Pedro and South of the Border and I've I've been and I've I've bought fireworks and Mexican jumping beans from every stupid gift shop or in that whole entire area. So, yes. Although for, for listeners, don't eat there. There's probably a, a good Mexican restaurant within 10 miles, and that is not it. <laughs> but you should at least eat there once just oh, for the oh, experience once, to once. say that you ate in the big, the big sombrero restaurant. That's the one to go to. That's true. That's true. But yeah, usually when I start thinking about Peter Pan and, and the unfortunate aspects, that's the first thing that comes to mind. So uh, just but, that but also just in defense for horrible Mexican food too. not everyone that's doing a cross country road trip has ever even had actual authentic Mexican food. So even like a crappy watered down sort of like gift shop version of it is still better than just like hopping over to McDonald's maybe. That is true. Now, for me, see, I didn't hit it till I was much older because uh, my family trip was from Atlanta to uh, Delaware, and we would use I-85 for most of the way. So we could see the mm -hmm. big peach. Hey, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but we were probably passing Heritage USA. We could have stopped in there for some, some, some you know, Jesus time because um, <laughs> it was the 80s. But yeah, yeah, I remember you know, you'd still see a few of the signs on I-85 for south of the border and why don't we go there you know we couldn't because we we're on the wrong highway but <laughs> i mean uh, but you get there too and you're just like well what's what is there to do and it's like well you can eat some mexican food and you can buy some fireworks and a t-shirt that's pretty much it there's like there's no rides there's no attractions there's <laughs> no like because it's not anything it's just a glorified gift shop slash gas station with some like tchotchke sort of hotels around but like it's it's not an actual thing that you do, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I didn't hit it till I was like 
didn't actually go there till I was like maybe 22. So by then it was like, so ironically amusing, you know, it, it took a special place in my heart. <laughs> but, I th think it's, it's almost as similar as someone going to like a Bucky's for the very first time and just being, you know, amazed at like, Oh wow. There's like over a hundred gas pumps here and the freaking inside of the gas stations, like a super Walmart. Uh, but after, you know, you've gone through there, it's just like, Oh no, it's actually just a really decent place as like a, a milestone slash pit stop on like a long road trip and it continues to be that and i hope south of the border continues to be that you know long past when i'm gone yeah um i guess the modern equivalent i didn't even know this existed until like a couple weeks ago listening to another podcast but the uh the great wolf lodges just sounds like an insane uh it was described as being like everything a child would want and like aggressively horrible towards their adult um <laughs> patrons <laughs> just like everything this is a real, a real thing yeah apparently they're they, they it's these uh hotels for the family uh with a water park uh in the center and you have like no amenities so the parents like basically you have to like deal with your screaming kids the entire time you're there as they <laughs> run around playing magic games and going down water slides and stuff so <laughs> I, I think uh, like Disney, I don't know if you heard this one, but Disney Cruise Line's actually done a great job of inverting that where like a, like a lot of people have this connotation of like, oh, I'm not going to go on a Disney Cruise Line. I want to be surrounded by kids. Like, no, actually, they've perfected the science of putting the kids in, and like whisking them away and keeping them all out of sight so that like all the adults and parents can kind of get a break. It, it's probably not the same as going on like a norwegian or, or one of those lines that like actively like has nothing at all for kids to do but the disney cruise lines are notoriously good for like occupying the kids to the point where you're just like is my kid still alive like are they even on the boat still i haven't seen or heard from them in you know like a day now <laughs> yeah so the great with lodge is the polar opposite of that basically so. yeah yeah that's what it sounds like <laughs> um Usually you got a, a late stage banger uh, for these. You got a bit of research there to, to really set the world on fire. <laughs> uh, I think I front loaded a little bit of it with just the backstory of J.M. Barry and sort of his trajectory in life, the dead, um, the dead brother that he might have actually killed himself. Jury's out the fact that he's got that Lewis Carroll connection. So I, I front loaded some of like the heavy hitter bangers. There was one aspect of this that uh that's kind of like overt and i just thought it was like an interesting topic because it doesn't get brought up as much as the the racist version of you know the what made the red man red but it's the the sexist sort of angle that is discounted in so many of these parts of it. it's like one of them is that in that previous song there's this extra aspect where like wendy's not allowed to participate in any of it and every time she tries to join the song and dance um, they're like, no, 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 you need to go and do chores or you need to carry like these logs over here or something um, like she's actively, you know, uh, excluded from any of this. In addition to that, there's really no girls at all uh, in the Lost Boys. It's right in the name Lost Boys. So Peter Pan himself, not only does he have these mommy issues, but he kind of actively dislikes women and does not want women around at all um, in his whole entire clique. The only women that kind of even exist around neverland are the mermaids and the mermaids explicitly say that they're trying to drown wendy once they see her um so there's this weird this weird like sexual love triangle between 
Peter and Tinkerbell and Wendy, and I guess for uh, a smaller degree, the mermaids, just because that's kind of part of their own character. But it's weird that uh, like when Wendy has this attraction to Peter Pan and Tinkerbell immediately gets jealous of it. In fact, the whole entire premise of the original movie, um, the, the 1953 cartoon, is that Hook literally says a jealous female can be tricked of anything. And he's talking about uh, Tinkerbell being jealous over Wendy and Peter Pan. Um, and that kind of drives like the main conflict of the entire movie and the resolution is all about Tinkerbell having this kind of like uh, jealousy over an attraction between the two. And I was all and in the, the book, Tinkerbell tells the Lost Boys to shoot at Wendy, like actually try to kill her. And in the cartoon, they kind of do that, too, where they she says, like, oh, shoot her down. And they actually like are trying to shoot her with like slingshots and, you know, throwing like sticks at her and stuff. Um, but in the the original play, she actually gets shot <laughs> by one of the uh, the Lost Boys, um, so which is it's interesting because there's this like very strong recurring theme that, again, I think it's not just part of the story. It's about kind of the DNA that went into the original writer and just his entire experience growing up and kind of being stunted. I'm working on a 30 year old memory here, but do I remember in the play? Like no one plays Tinkerbell. There's it's just a presence. It's on a the light. Stage. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. So, so they're actually okay. I'm glad you brought that up because there is a interesting twist here. I don't know if it's earth shattering, um, but it's the concept of lightness and darkness. And again, this plays into Peter Pan portraying um, himself as like the good guy, but really being the bad guy. And one of the strongest in, uh, instances of this is sometimes in the play, it doesn't really come across as much in the cartoon movie, but in the original plays and a lot of the reenactments, like you said, Tinkerbell is actually portrayed as just like this big blinding light. And they'll usually just do like a spotlight or something and that'll be Tinkerbell or they've got some kind of like glowing effect. But in, in terms of how Peter looks at the world, he embraces darkness and um, kind of pushes away from light which in just like typical metaphors and just the basic um, sort of like symbolism of light and darkness, that's the inverse of what you would normally expect. So for example, Peter finds his shadow. He gets so incredibly excited that he forgets that Tinkerbell's like locked in the drawer. And they, they have a little bit of a nod to this in the cartoon. It's a little bit more pronounced in the original writing. Um, but, but he's so fascinated with his shadow and staying in the darkness. And as soon as anyone mentions turning on light, um, or bringing light to a situation, that's the thing that he's typically always against. And he's actually frightened of light and is more comfortable in the dark. Meanwhile, all Captain Hook wants to do is, uh, play with his toys, you know, like dark helmet and space balls. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the, the hook version where he has that like wonderful, like, which is under his bed or something. <laughs> Honestly, I, I I came away from this loving Captain Hook, um, not just in the cartoon, but in the, the Hook movie. Uh, I think he's kind of is like the cooler character. And especially if you consider it with the theory of Peter Pan's killing the Lost Boys and Hook is the good guy, either saving them or fighting back against Peter. Um, just the character of Hook just has extra levels of depth that i really like and i guess peter pan too because having this like really dark shadowed um history and him almost being this like horrible trickster like in, in the 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 play 
there is another aspect that doesn't come across in any of the movies. And that's that Peter mentions that he gets so caught up in the moment sometimes when they're fight, the lost boys are fighting against the pirates that sometimes just for fun, he switches over to the pirate side and fights against the lost boys just for fun, because he's just like, so built up in the moment. So again, I think this goes into his trickster pan sort of uh, not being the good guy. If anything might be the bad guy aspect, which all these are so much cooler. I wish I wish some of this was captured in that original uh, cartoon. What well, was Peter panning? He was a uh, not was he a banker? That's what bankers do, right? Play both sides. <laughs> I put it. Oh, I just put a corporate raider. I guess he's the lawyer. Excuse me, but uh, not not that that's a whole lot better. But <laughs> well, and they use in the hook movie they use that raider because it's like, oh, Peter, you're a pirate now, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. But yeah, I was just thinking of playing the both sides, you know, with uh, a good banker always funds both sides, right? So you get at least half your money back <laughs> with interest. Um, having Robin Williams is in this also, it doesn't help the shantytown uh, pirate village set because you, you can't help but really think of um, the Popeye village. I'm, I'm pretty sure they did not use Malta for this, but... Definitely had some flashbacks to uh, the the Altman Popeye movie. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but <laughs> it's not great. It's not great. I remember seeing that when it came out, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I'll put it that way, at least. <laughs> but okay. this... in, in like <laughs> in a in a Tommy Wiseau room kind of way, maybe. Speaking of weird, uh, weird musical, that one definitely ranks in there. Making <laughs> Robin Williams sing in a Popeye voice. You know, they got um, Shelley Duvall singing, which not her strength um <laughs> a weirdly charming movie though well and and random tangent here too just because again uh candido i'm just fascinated with this guy's voice um he also sang some of the um popeye songs like the i'm popeye the sailor man that went into like children's records so that's another place where some people might recognize his voice from if, if you've never heard of him before let me let me just find out what his actual name was He's got a, a rendition of One Meatball, which is the best thing that you could ever listen to, I think, of, of his, of his. Candy Candido. That was that was his name. Candy Candido. Seems to ring some kind of a bell. Um, but yeah, maybe that's, that's I'll have to go search around for that later. <laughs> um. I don't know. I guess uh, what what we all have our little Peter Pan things and have to hold on to some weird part of our younger selves. Uh, what are you holding on to? <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, I'm you know I'm I'm about to turn forty uh, in less than six months, and I still love you know playing video games and watching Disney cartoons, and um, so I think in that that way, you know, I refuse to grow up for sure. Although I. I kind of felt like I was more of a Jeffrey's Toys R Us kid in terms of not growing up more so than Peter Pan. Peter Pan always had a, a creepy aspect. And also I think I just always got soured because whenever Peter Pan was on TV, I'd get excited, but it would end up being like one of those boring play versions and not the actual cartoon. Um, so I was just like constantly disappointed whenever the the phrase Peter Pan came up. Um, but the concept of just like always staying young and just being one of those lost boys, uh, I think that just resonates with everybody. I guess that's a um, partly a function of of Disney's old 
marketing strategy for their classic films for like every seven years we'll put it back in the theater and you know in the between times you can just you know screw off <laughs> you can't watch these films <laughs> which um I, i've been reading the disney wars so that was a big thing they're like this is our strategy we can't change it that's how we keep making money from these films i guess now the way they make money from the films is to make the live action ones that are so terrible you have to go running back to the originals <laughs> <laughs> when we did pinocchio just a few scant months ago i didn't actually know that there was a, a again quote unquote live action one coming out which sounds like a hot mess despite having robert zemeckis directing it but i, I guess that he's got a weird career because he did of course, he did its classic films. He he did all those weird early CGIs. Then he made a few straight dramas, and now he's making Pinocchio. So yeah, that's pretty weird. <laughs> I think you might actually be onto something here, where they release a live action remake, people see it, and they're like, "I could have sworn the original was better. Let me go back and watch the original." And now Disney just got two watches out of you instead of one. Well, I, I heard someone uh, again on a different podcast mention this, and I, I, it, I was like, that actually sounds like, like not like just a joke, but what they're doing, the idea being that these movies are kind of like, you know, like grandma telling you to get a uh, savings deposit or, or bond or something. These are like Disney's like future bonds, right? They're just <laughs> like, it's, it's like they're spending the money to make this kind of crap movie, but one, it makes you like the original better and extends the life of that one. So you, in the long run, you will make continue to make more money from that original version, but you need this kind of, it's almost like a trailer for the old version, you know, like a two yeah, and a half just, hour just trailer. Wait for the, uh, the official Disney classic NFTs to start coming out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I kind of hope we start forgetting about NFTs soon, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah good luck i don't think so man yeah yeah I, I guess i'm one of those guys that just refuses to wrap my head around either so I, I actually own a little bit of crypto but i that's another thing i don't want to think about like at all <laughs> but uh just because I, I think it was just on paypal you want to put something in crypto like, oh, sure why not see what happens i haven't looked for six months so don't know what happened there yeah keep not looking you're doing yeah. fine okay <laughs> that's that I, I can keep that up for sure <laughs> um I guess we'll wind this one down unless you got any other uh, big points you want to make, which, so, which you are welcome yeah, I mean, to do. So, so I, I hinted towards this uh, earlier on. And again, this one just kind of caught me by surprise. But um, And not to leave this on a, on a somber note, but this truly did kind of leave the lasting impact from all the research into this. And that's that Peter Pan, he becomes an icon, right? But it's bait all of the characters of Peter Pan, the original and the movie more so, are based on these Lewin Davies children, and they all end up having short and tragic lives. At least the the ones that don't end up killing themselves have short and tragic lives. One of them died in the early 20s as a soldier in World War One. Another one died right before his 21st birthday, drowning. And this was Michael, um, which was one of the kids that was, you know, the three the two brothers were named after. Um, John, the other kid, died of lung disease, and then the namesake Peter threw himself under a train at age 63, and and the quote was, um, that terrible masterpiece. That's how he always referred to his inclusion in Peter Pan. So the... Uh, I think I, I maybe I just like always have this propensity to like go towards like the weird, dark sort of like black humor angle of things. But it just kind of completely took me off guard, but made me feel even more interested in this whole backstory of Peter Pan, because it's not just 
um this infantile like well, i don't want to grow up and i just want to have fun forever like there was some really truly deep-seated emotional psychological you know stunted reasons why the story came together and why the characters were named after certain people and why his shadow was disconnected like all of these things build up to an incredibly complex person and a really you know battered life that that guy and everyone that he kind of interacted with was affected by this peter pan story and in very you know long lasting ways and sometimes that that's just interesting to me like like there's not that much backstory in dumbo i don't think you know like it didn't affect so many people's lives in these in these different ways to the same aspect of peter pan and i guess before the alice in wonderland was another good example of that so much victorian era excess you know by the 1960s they got it way streamlined you you film the misfits next to atomic bomb tests and let half the cast and crew eventually die of various cancers just for another tragic <laughs> production <laughs> but uh yeah that that was always a weird one you heard much about that i mean funny enough i'm doing some completely unrelated research that led directly into those original bikini atoll atomic tests and one of the original guys there uh, have you ever heard this is a total wild tangent but the guy that did the flatworm experience um, or experiments where they would teach a flatworm to avoid light um, to, until it was a conditioned response and then would like cut them in half and they'd regrow each section and both of those sections knew and then he chopped one up and fed it to other worms and the worms that ate the the worm that learned about avoiding light now the ones that consumed him also knew about avoiding light almost through this transference and it was the origination of the term engram um and engram being like a physical manifestation of a memory like the the physical connection between two neurons essentially was the memory itself it's kind of like antiquated um knowledge but the guy that came up with um part of that theory was directly related to that flatworm research and he came right out of um, the military into the bikini atoll test saw these huge atomic bombs going off went into comedy writing for tv in cincinnati and then left that and became this sort of you know researcher into ingram research and ingrams is is directly related to stephen um or richard dawkins concept of the meme you know of like passing oh, right. around images like that's that's an exact correlation between all of this so I, I was on like this wild tangent but yeah the the atomic tests um happened in this exact you know early 1950s um like to early 1960s era like i think it was like 54 was one of the first drops and then 58 was towards like the end of it but like it was this like rapidly changing world where you've got like technicolors out atomic bombs are out world war ii just happened like just so many things are happening all at once i don't know if the world could have handled an internet at that same time right imagine like uh just being overloaded with information and all of these crazy world changing things happening you know at the exact same time all of our trivia just keeps overlapping i was doing a podcast Two weeks ago, uh, I, I do one where we talk about Twilight Zone episodes and we were noting how the concepts, they didn't have words yet. They didn't have the vocabulary to talk about AI. So they're like saying memory tracks. And uh, we were like, well, what would you say now? Engrams? And we're like, where was that from? We, we decided Star Trek The Next Generation, but you've given us a, a far earlier no, answer. So Engrams so <laughs> was from a uh, coin around 1904. The guy's name was Richard Seaman. Haha, <laughs> Dick Seaman. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> 
But uh, he's the one that coined engrams. He coined the original concept of a meme, but it was M-N-E-M-E, named after the Greek goddess of memory. But that exact word and definition is what evolved into our current version of meme. But also engrams, if you're familiar with uh, Scientology and Dianetic um, aspects, engram is essentially if you have like a bad or negative emotion that's actually like uh, an entity, like an alien entity that came from another universe that is inside your body. And part of going clear and doing all of like the check-ins with the e-meters is kind of like helping you expel those engrams from your body. And once you've expelled all the engrams, you're now, you know, quote unquote clear. And that's what going clear is. And again, that's the exact same concept of engrams, which came from Dick Seaman, 1904. Mm -hmm. Well, the, what the, the, they only tell you at the highest levels of Scientology is the way to get rid of your shadow self is just to close the window real fist. <laughs> <laughs> just to wing it on, take take that bus back to its uh, original port. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it, that is kind of the, the idea. You can take it, you know, through from a sci-fi author. You can have it from a Victorian madman, you know, uh, but people get similar thoughts here and there that's why hollywood always makes you know the two same movies at the same time right <laughs> well and and again you brought up when we first started talking about this that strong art archetype correlation of ahab and captain hook where it's like the same story just told from different perspectives but the archetype is so strong that you can paint it up in any different way it's like a um, one of those over overused analogies of like the eight blind men feeling the elephant in the dark room, right? Like one guy's got the trunk and one guy's got the tail and like they're all describing an elephant, but they all just have their own kind of perspectives on it. And they say there's only what 12 basic stories. So you got 12 elephants to go um, <laughs> explore, I guess. Story templates or whatever. Um I guess we will go ahead and end this one for today. So what's going on in your world? This one's going to be pretty quick to uh, publish uh, and people will be hearing us a, a few days after recording. Oh, so one, one big one is the chosen one issue. One is finally out. It's available in some select comic shops and small places across United States, but you can also check the one-on-one podcast.com website uh, Juan is the creator and namesake of the chosen one. Um, but check that out. Brand new comic. That's going to be an ongoing series. The following issues are going to have a whole bunch of popular conspiracy podcasters in it and stuff. So that's a really fun one. Uh, and then I will continue working on a, a game that I'm, that I started earlier this year called Lucifer lives in lower Manhattan. It's not available yet, but the steam page might be available. So if you want to go in like, click the watch this game uh do that for lucifer lives in lower manhattan on steam yeah that's why earlier when i brought up nick cage i was like wait a minute what am i saying i don't need to tell you anything about nick cage you, you talk to Juan all the time <laughs> so and and yeah you can check for for updates on my stuff at paranoidamerican.com and at paranoidamerican on instagram and i also wanted to end uh my little monologue here with my two favorite lines from the hook movie and this is in the insult fight between Rufio and Peter. And uh, I'll, I'll go with Rufio and then Peter's response. So Rufio is, you're a big fart factory, slug slime, slack of rat guts and cat vomit, cheesy scab, pick, pickled pimple squeezing finger bandage, weak old maggot burger with everything on it and flies on the side. 
And Peter comes back with, well, you're a lewd, crude bag, a pre-chewed food dude, you zebra-headed, slime-coated, pimple-farming, parmesium brain, munching on your own mucus, suffering from Peter Pan envy.